At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food, we'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here, in the ordinary, everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness and grace. Thank you so much for being with us today. My name is Steven Zarelli, one of the pastors here at Woodside. So thankful to our praise team for leading us and for Pastor EJ just reading the text and just preparing our hearts for what God would have for us this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. So please grab a Bible in front of you. It's so good to follow along in the Word of God. Luke chapter 14 is where we will spend our time this morning. As you're turning there, Pastor Chris uh, is this morning spending his time at our Algonac campus. And today's a huge day for them. On Thursday, they had a ribbon-cutting ceremony where they opened up their new facility, completely now done and renovated right in the center of Algonac. Uh, and some community leaders were there. Some of their staff was there, uh, many within their church family were there. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. And so I was able to be there and just see this space. It is stunning. It's such a beautiful space that we know God will use for the proclamation of his word in the days ahead. And so this morning, they're actually dedicating that as their first official service. And so he is there to celebrate with them. And this is one of the beautiful things about being one church in many locations because they stepped into this new building, fully renovated, completely ready for ministry. And again, completely debt-free because of all of Woodside Bible Church. So thank you for that. And what's so wonderful is our campuses, as they move into these facilities and our church, by God's grace, is completely in that debt-free position. They actually then give funds back into what we call a campus accelerator fund to help the next campus that would need to have some expansion and some ministry done. And so just know that we are all a part of that story. He is very much also looking forward to being with all of you here this Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And uh, hopefully we are all looking forward to a great next weekend together during this Passion Week. Now, we've been working through this series on meals with Jesus and seeing how they communicate uh, the ministry of Christ, the heart of Christ, and ultimately the message of the gospel. And we can all remember some of the best meals we've ever experienced. Uh, last week, I had one of those meals. I was at a farm-to-table restaurant, so everything was fresh and I had something that I believe that it should be a requirement on, in every restaurant, in every state. It's really just in southern states, but I had hush puppies. They need to be here. And I had fried chicken and mac and cheese. It was incredible. And all the ingredients, all the flavors, they were perfect. Nothing was missing. I paid really good money to have my life expectancy shortened by about 10 days. But it was worth the investment. Totally a, a good ROI in that moment. We can also remember the worst meals we've ever experienced as well. Uh, many years ago, I was serving on a mission trip internationally, and in this particular cultural context, the host family that I was staying with, we'd all have dinner together, but for breakfast, I was brought food, and the host would sit at the table and watch me eat until I was finished. It's a little bit awkward if you've never experienced that before. And one morning they were excited because they had purchased what they called American food. I wasn't sure what that meant, but I thought I'd go for it and just go along with it. So I sat down at the table 
And they came out of the kitchen and they brought out this plate with three pink, like bright pink, cold, uncooked, what they called hot dogs. And they put them down before me next to a giant glass of orange juice. And then they sat there and watched. Uh, Now, God bless them. They didn't know. But what makes a good hot dog? I mean, first, you need a grill. So that's important. You need a grill. And then in my case, I like to have some Heinz ketchup and some Bertman's original ballpark mustard and some Wickles relish and chopped white onion. And the most important ingredient of all is a hot dog made of beef. You need beef. But I'm not sure what it was, but I am 100% certain that beef was not one of the ingredients in whatever that mystery meat was. It was just, you know, cold, uncooked mystery meat without a bun, without ketchup, without mustard or relish, being washed down by orange juice before 7 a.m. with people staring at you the whole time. It was a wonderful experience. Well, we've been exploring these meals with Jesus, and Luke carefully and intentionally records these four so that we might better understand his ministry and message. And we've been encouraging one another to host some of these meals ourselves, hopefully good ones, and invite our neighbors and networks to our homes so we can build relationship with them. And my prayer, our prayer has been that you've done that and that they'll be joining you this Good Friday or Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, not just for a physical meal, but for a spiritual meal from the word of God as well. And this morning, we'll see that Jesus had one of his worst meals in Luke 14. And in this case, food wasn't the problem. Let me give you a little bit of the background before we dive into the verses. Jesus had been invited to dinner again by a Pharisee, a leading Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees. Luke is the only gospel writer who actually describes three different occasions where Jesus was eating with Pharisees at the Pharisees' home. No other gospel writer actually talks about that. And he'd been invited by this leading Pharisee who made sure to bring several other hand-picked elites to be around that particular table. The table most likely would have been prepared with a braided bread called challah, sprinkled with sea salt from the Dead Sea, uh, olive oil for dipping. They would have had a dish of legumes, dried dates and figs, radishes, cucumbers, uh, maybe lettuce, Because of the wealth of the host, they most likely would have had meat seasoned with parsley and mint and cilantro and other herbs and spices and most likely would have had a fine wine and dessert. All the ingredients were there, but one key ingredient was missing. It was a Friday evening, the beginning of Jewish Shabbat or what we call the Sabbath. And so it was a time of celebration and a time of rest from Friday evening to Saturday sundown. But the occasion wasn't the problem either. That wasn't the missing ingredient, at least not for Jesus. The problem was that there was this essential ingredient missing that made having a meal with Jesus impossible to enjoy. There are times in our lives where, and there are certainly times in people who do not follow Jesus in their lives, where it's nearly impossible to actually enjoy the company of Christ as experienced through his word, through prayer, or through faith. And when this ingredient is missing, no one could enjoy this meal. So what was that missing ingredient, an ingredient that in our world today is almost extinct altogether? It's the ingredient of humility. Humility. 
Humility is essential for anyone to actually enjoy Jesus Christ. Pride blinds us. What is essential for us to enjoy him? Humility, yet pride blinds us. Think about this. Why is it that so many people do not enjoy a vibrant relationship with the one person who loves them more deeply, more completely, more unconditionally than any other human being ever could? I mean, he offers freely his love to everyone. And yet why do millions upon millions not enjoy the Christ? Pride. Pride blinds us. In the absence of humility, we will always find the presence of pride. And it is a plague. It is a plague in our lives and in our society. Since the beginning of the human story in Genesis 3, pride has been luring people away from the abundant life that God actually intends and into a life that promises abundance. It promises all these things of God, and yet it delivers scarcity. Nothing. Nothing promised, nothing delivered. Before we get to chapter 14 again, Luke tells us that Jesus had violated in the first 13 chapters this strict religious rule by healing people on the Sabbath on three different occasions. It sounds ridiculous, but whenever we add to or take away from the truth of the word of God, that's where we end up with ridiculous man-made conventions that are not consistent with his truth or his way. And so they actually made these rules like you should not do this and you should not do that and you should not uh, expound this kind of energy on the Sabbath day or do this type of preparation. All things need to be done ahead of time. And somewhere along the way, because it happens, I guess, so frequently, they had to say, do not heal on the Sabbath. So they had this rule in there. He has broken this rule. And so this whole arrangement is another setup. Now, Jesus had healed Simon Peter's mother in chapter 4, a man with a withered hand in chapter 6, and a crippled woman in chapter 13. It's one of the great ironies found in the scriptures themselves. People witnessed an act of God, and they get more worked up about the day of the week than the fact that a miracle just happened. I mean, it makes us wonder, like, how is that even possible? If a woman, for example, from chapter 13 has been bent over not able to stand straight in her lifetime, and you see this woman stands strong and walk away normal, and what you're more concerned about is not just what you saw, but the fact that it was Saturday or Friday evening. What is going on here? Well, honestly, it's not as far-fetched as we might think. So many people want to experience God, but they want to experience God on their terms. People want God to demonstrate his presence and power, but only when it fits into their rules, their calendars, their agendas. So they miss it. They actually miss the miracle. And it haunts me, like how many times have I missed the hand of God working in me, around me, in the world today, because I have put him into some kind of regiment or box, and if he doesn't fit into my agenda and my calendar, I can't see him. That's what's happening here. Because the great deception is that life isn't ultimately about God's glory and God's way. Because of pride, which started from the very beginning, the great deception of life is that ultimately it's about our glory and our way, 
my time, my title, my treasure, or in the words of Disney's latest film, I can't resist, my panda, my choice. In other words, it's just about me. It's really just about me. And so just like the Pharisees, it's possible to come to church on time. They were there on time to read the word of God, to sing songs of praise and be completely oblivious to the work God is doing around us and wants to do in us because ultimately pride centers the universe on us instead of the true king. And because of pride, because of pride, the point becomes not to shape our lives into the image of the sun, but to shape the sun into the image of our lives. In the absence of humility, we always find the presence of pride. The presence of pride brings the extinction of the other. The presence of humility brings the extinction of the other. But pride here, it's our first point. It's the negative perspective. Pride keeps us from enjoying Jesus. Now look at verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now, the table you are invited to has always been a display of social status in societies. Who you eat with says a lot about you. It did then, it still does. Ever since middle school. That's like when it starts and it never really changes. Now, in the eyes of the culture, Jesus is being like called up. He was in the minor leagues. Now he's being called up from AAA. He's going to the majors because now the ruler uh, of the Pharisees is inviting him to dinner. But the meal is a complete disaster. And here's why. Because the posture and the attitude that these Pharisees brought to the table set the tone for what happens next. And we find a principle here too. Whether it's the first century or the 21st century, if you come to the table, if you think about your home, maybe the home you grew up in, if you come to that dinner table looking for a fight, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get a fight. If you come to that table wanting to shut down, you'll shut other people down. If you come to the table disengaged and uninterested, then you'll leave disengaged, uninterested, and without a memory. How did you come to the table of the Lord today, this meal from his word? Did you come with expectation? Did you come with anticipation, believing the Lord doesn't just want to speak to the people you love in your life and those sitting around you, but actually wants to speak directly to you, to your heart, to your soul, ready to receive, ready to listen, ready to serve with humility. That's what it takes to enjoy Christ. Or did you come with a closed heart and mind? So often I find it fascinating as a preacher and as a pastor over the years. Uh, I'm finishing up my 20th year here at Woodside. And as I've preached at many of our campuses over the years, people will come up and you'll have some people say, man, God just spoke so directly to me today. And other people will come up and say, I didn't really hear anything at all. And I've become convinced it's not so much what's coming out of the mouth of the preacher as long as it's consistent with the truth of God's word. It's the posture that we come into the room with. And I'm the same. I can sit in this room and listen to Pastor Chris or listen to one of our preachers and, and I can come in and completely miss all that the Lord has for me because I came in with the wrong posture, a posture of pride. 
That's what these men came into this dinner with. When we bring pride to the table, it's like pouring too much salt and pepper all over the food. It just, it just ruins it. And here's what pride looks like. Three things. It looks like skepticism first. The text says they were watching him carefully. The verb is only used six times in the New Testament. It's always with the sense of watch, watching with insincerity in order to accuse or to trap or to kill even. Uh, the truth is that they were looking at him, hoping he'd slip up in regard to their law. That was what they were really after, seeing if he would abide by their law so they could accuse him and denounce him, discredit him, ultimately incriminate him, which is exactly what happens this very Passion Week. In Psalm 37, verse 32, it says something very similar. It says, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The devil's first words in the scripture themselves were words of skepticism. He's the father of lies. This is where pride can start with skepticism. He said, did God really say? Skepticism. If we are pre-committed to falsity and will not pursue God with a pure heart and with pure motives, we will hear only what we want to hear. And the horrifying result of impure motives is that people, human beings, you and I, can sincerely believe it is God who has spoken when all along all we're actually hearing is our own lying hearts. In a world that doesn't buy the idea of absolute truth, all that you're left with in our culture is your truth. And since we all figure out rather quickly, it shouldn't take long, that your own truth isn't always true, we are taught to be skeptical of everything, to deconstruct everything, to deconstruct our relationships, to deconstruct the word of God, to deconstruct our faith. We have to bring skepticism to it all. Now, I'm not saying just believe everything blindly without thinking about it. God's word can handle your critical thinking. It can stand up to the test of human question and concern. But you won't enjoy Jesus if you're constantly looking to disprove or deconstruct him. If that's how we enter the conversation. If we're going to him saying, waiting for a slip up, waiting for that inconsistency, waiting for that friend, that brother or that sister or that uh, man or woman who's been sharing with me about it, I'm just waiting for the slip up. I'm waiting to deconstruct it so I can find a reason to say this is not true. If we're constantly looking to deconstruct or disprove, then we will have an awfully hard time enjoying Jesus Christ and all he brings. Pride also looks like stubbornness. The verse goes on to say, And behold, there was a man before him, that is Jesus, who had dropsy. Maybe you know the word edema. And that's what he struggled with. It's a swelling caused by fluid in your body tissues. So your arms and your ankles and your legs, sometimes your belly, uh, they'll fill with water and with fluid. It's a possible sign of heart and kidney failure. Most would agree that the Pharisees brought in this man intentionally just to put him there like a temptation to use him as bait to see if Jesus would heal him. So we're going to have this dinner, but all of that's really just a show because we're going to bring in this guy. And most commentators would also think he was basically, he, he, he was near death. 
He, he was a man who was about to die. He was most likely someone who was uh, just probably days or maybe weeks away from dying terminally ill as a result of this issue. So in the first century, dropsy was thought to be the consequence of gluttony. So when they looked at this man, they said, he's a sinner. He must have been a glutton. Because when you have dropsy, what your body desires for you to do is to drink more and more fluid. Well, drinking more and more fluid just fills up your body with more and more fluid, more and more swelling, and it just is this horrible cycle. And so they actually used it in the first century as a metaphor for people who struggled with greed and lust. The ancients would write, just as dropsies who are filled with fluid crave more drink, so money lovers, though loaded with money, crave more of it yet both to their demise. So Luke tells us that these Pharisees were lovers of money in chapter 16, verse 14. And the irony of this whole thing is that while the man needed Jesus to physically heal his dropsy, they needed Jesus to heal their moral dropsy. And they bring this man in, terminally ill, not even hoping for his restoration or concern just to try to trap this young rabbi. What does Jesus do? With all of that like attitude, with all of that pride, with all of that arrogance, with all of that sin that was so wrapped up in their hearts, all the evil that they're demonstrating here, the lack of compassion, all of it, what does he do? I mean, I'd be tempted if I'm Christ and have the power of God to say, hey, you don't want to see this man healed from dropsy? Well, I'm going to heal him and give it to you. No, not Jesus. He's so gracious. He's so much more gracious than we tend to be. He does what he often does. He asks him a question. He asks them a question. In his grace, he asks questions to help them see. Look at verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? If they said yes, they would come across as hypocrites since they were the ones who said it was illegal. If they said no, they could be accused of being uncaring about human suffering. Now, we give these leaders a horrible rap. And if you're like me, you often kind of disassociate yourself from the Pharisee. You you might be one of Jesus' disciples in the story. You might be the person in need of healing in the story. But we usually don't put ourselves in the position or the seat of the Pharisee. But at the end of the day, they were actually trying to help their nation obey God. If you think about it, they felt that people had run so far away from God's standards, which they had that the only hope for them as people was to lead people back into obedience, which they weren't in. This is not a bad goal. The problem came when they wrongly interpreted the heart of God's law and misapplied the message of God's law. The point is that obedience still matters to God, but grace does as well. And both need to be kept in balance. The good news of Jesus is that we are forgiven for our disobedience through faith. That's the good news of the gospel. But we are also empowered by the grace of God to obey, which is for his good, for our good and his glory. Now in verse 4, it says, But they remained silent. He asked the question, they remained silent. Then he took him, Jesus took him, and healed him, and sent him away. That's the end of it. 
We don't see him again. This story isn't as much about the healing of the man with dropsy as it is about the conversation he's having with those at the meal. And this shows us the third and uh, that second principle once again of pride. It's their, their stubbornness. Of course they knew the scripture didn't forbid it, but they'd rather hold on to their power than agree with God and show compassion. They knew there was the possibility of Jesus healing him, but they couldn't imagine giving up their seat at the table whom Jesus would have, he, he would have clearly been given one of the seats of honor. If he would have healed this man and they would have responded appropriately, then guess what that means for them? That means that they don't get to sit where they wanted to sit. They'd have to give up position. They'd have to give up some of their own self-prescribed honor. We hold on to many things out of stubbornness. We hold on to anger. We hold on to bitterness. We hold on to greed, to lust, to position. And maybe you'll get to sit back down in that seat that you're protecting, but you'll never find satisfaction there. You'll never enjoy Jesus because pride makes it impossible. Finally, pride looks like self-preservation. Looks like self-preservation. Look at verse five. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Again, silence. He's basically pointing out that if the suffering affects you personally, then guess what? The rules no longer apply. So you make the rules, but if the rules are going to impact your possessions, your life, your comfort, your way, well, then those rules aren't as important. He's pointing out that hypocrisy. And I am so, so guilty of this. God help me as a parent. God help us as parents. We, we do this all the time. I do this all the time. You, you give rules to your kids. But then when that rule is not very convenient for you, that rule doesn't apply. And it works until they get to like 12 years old. And then it doesn't work anymore because they point it out. And they'll let you know. It was a couple of weeks ago, my, my son, it was not a pleasant conversation, but he basically was saying, Dad, sometimes the stuff you preach you don't do. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> That's true. And we have to admit it. We have to say that sometimes there is a disconnect between what we say and what we do. But to preserve our position, to preserve our authority, to preserve our power, we dig in our heels. That's what pride does instead of let Jesus actually heal the brokenness in us through this little step called repentance. And I'm just wondering this morning, how many relationships with children could be reconciled if a parent or a grandparent would simply say, I didn't always follow the ways of Jesus. I am sorry. Instead of self-preserving, instead of being stubborn, instead of being skeptical of their response, just to look in the mirror, recognize your own distortion, your own pride, your own issue, and just say, this is what I can control. I am sorry. I wonder how many marriages in this room would step towards Christ 
and back towards each other. Instead of being in separate bedrooms, separate spaces, separate lives, separate everything, just by someone in that relationship turning to Jesus and saying, I'll do it with courage. I will turn to that person and say, I am sorry. Pride destroys us. It destroyed us in the garden. It's destroyed us ever since. And it's so demoralizing. It's so difficult as we help one another in this journey called life that, that we must overcome it. We must encourage one another to overcome it. It's a hard step to take, friends, but get rid of the albatross. Take the step. You want more grace? You want to experience more grace in your home, in your relationship? Do you want to get back to enjoying not just Jesus, but the people that Jesus has given you? Drop pride. Pick up humility. In the absence of humility, we will always find the presence of pride. Pride keeps us from enjoying Jesus and one another. Secondly, the positive humility allows us to enjoy Jesus. Let's be honest. Humility is near extinct in this culture. It's like near extinct. There's plenty of false humility, but that's just a more deceptive, dressed-up version of pride. The, the humble, uh, the false humility of saying, oh, you know, I, I, I give praise to God and I give praise to them and my team and my people and this and that and the other and all the false humility that's out there, you know, shucks. So, but deep inside, it's just this gathering of all that acclaim, building up our own idols of ourselves. Humility is desperately needed it's a desperately needed ingredient in our homes, in our churches, in our conversations, on our stages, in our communities, in our politics. Why? Well, Jesus summed it up so beautifully and effectively in Matthew 22. He said, uh, a teacher asked him, uh, a leader asked him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? If you've been around the word of God, you've heard this. Jesus replied, here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So let me state the extremely obvious that we obviously have a hard time following. Loving God first and loving people as yourself means you'll draw more attention to the Lord and more attention to the needs of others than you will yourself. It means in a world full of narcissists, you won't be a narcissist. It means you'll experience joy in ways that are impossible for people consumed by pride because they're at the center of their universe. How incredible that Jesus, think about this with me for a moment. Jesus is the son of God, God incarnate, God in flesh, the God, man, the theanthropos. He knows all things. It's called omniscience. He's omnipotent, all powerful. He's omnipresent. He, he has all the character qualities of God. And he comes to the earth. You would think that when he speaks to his creation, that we should probably pay attention to that information. He would have good answers to say about everything. And when you look at the Gospels, he is actually asked 183 questions in the Gospels. You might want to write that down. It's an interesting thing. 183 questions he's asked in the Gospels. He knows everything. Guess how many of those questions he directly answers? Three. Three. 
Instead, he asks 307 questions in response. You know, you want to know when someone, or if you want to do a litmus test, when, when you're more concerned about others than yourself, think about how much questions you ask them versus how much you talk about yourself. Uh, friends, uh, friends of uh, our friends were uh, with dinner with us a few days ago. We were just having this conversation. We're like, when you're at a dinner and you're having a conversation, there's some of those people that you'll sit down with dinner for it and you'll say, hey, so good to be with you tonight. Been looking forward to this. How are you? And then you eat, you go through the appetizer and the entree and the dessert and an hour and a half passes and then you leave and they haven't finished their answer yet. The whole time they talked and talked and talked and talked and talked, but they never asked you a question. Now they left the dinner thinking like, that was great. Had such a good time. And you leave the dinner like, yeah, it was really all about you. Have we been there? Have we been guilty? Have we done this ourselves? Yet Jesus, who has every answer that mankind needs, takes interest in us. And so he tells them a story to help them see. Look at verse 7 through 11. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So they're in an honor-shame culture. Avoid shame, build honor. So the closer you are to the host means that you're more important at that dinner table. You have more honor. It's like a wedding reception. If you're near the bride and groom, you're in a place of honor. Verse 8, so when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. That's embarrassing. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, uh, say to you friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus says, let the host elevate you. So it all matters at which table you're actually referring to. If you're talking about the table in the kingdom of God, then you just don't worry about any other guest. You just let that host elevate you. When our competency, and this is what happens with human beings so often with all of us, when our competency is greater than our character, when our skill with people, when our skill in life, when our ability to connect on social media or some other means or in our jobs or whatever it might be, when that becomes greater, our competency becomes greater than our character, we've set ourselves up for a fall. Because whenever there's a gap between our character and our competency, that just makes us dangerous. That just makes us dangerous. That's the person who has massive influence in what they say and what they do, and yet their life is not consistent at all with that message. A fall is in store. When we view ourselves more highly than we ought, we inevitably become diminished. In Acts 14, we find an interesting contrast to this. The Apostle Paul heals a man who'd been crippled from birth. And this is what the scriptures tell us happens. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, so he heals a man in this case, they lifted up their voices saying, in like, like a onion, 
a very strange language of the people in that city. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands uh, to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So here's Paul. Here's Paul, and he has just healed this man. And after he's healed this man, there's this community of people, of course, that then come running out and say, we ought to treat you like a God. We ought to treat you as someone who has then just done this miraculous divine thing. But here's the thing with Paul. Paul wasn't the center of Paul's universe. Notice Paul wasn't the hero of his own story. And we should never be the hero of the story. There's only one hero. We're called to imitate his life. Do you know what happened to Paul right after all this went down, by the way? If you look at the next several verses in, in that chapter within Acts, you find that the people who had just wanted to make him a god actually then were influenced by Jews who came into the city. And then they ended up stoning him. They thought they killed him. They dragged him out of the city. In the same way as Pastor EJ just from Luke 19 read about how Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a colt on Palm Sunday. There were cheers, there was worship, there was praise. All of it was deserved. But just a few days later, the way Jesus came, it was not how the Romans would have expected a triumphal entry. A triumphal entry in Greco-Roman culture would have had a military procession. They would have had trophies from war. There would have been captives and a leader on a white horse with a crown. And Jesus came on a colt. The colt was symbolism. It was a symbol of a king, but a king of peace and a king of humility. It was in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The son of man came as the king of peace. He was given a crown of thorns. Humility. The Son of Man came with humility to die for the pride of humanity. Jesus was humiliated and shamed so that we could receive dignity and honor. Jesus was humiliated and shamed so that we could have a seat at the table of our Heavenly Father. And make no mistake, Jesus was humiliated and shamed so that the Lord of hosts would ultimately seat him at the head of the table. That's what we find in Revelation chapter 5. As the canon closes, John the apostle writes, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. When we humble ourselves, friends, we will be lifted up by the Lord of hosts. If you are in Christ, you need to know that you have already been exalted. It's already yours. 
You have nothing to prove. You don't have to exalt yourself because you're already exalted by Jesus Christ himself. You don't have to worship yourself. You're free. You're actually free to enjoy worshiping him, knowing that you don't need it because only in the worship of him do you actually find the joy, happiness, and purpose that you were created for. We are free from pride when we take on the humility of Christ and worship our exalted king. Would you stand as we pray and prepare our hearts to praise him together. Father God, thank you for this day. Father, we wanna be a people of humility. There's so much, of course, in our culture that says, no, stand strong, make a name for yourself, build your brand. And Father, there's only one brand that actually matters. There's only one name that is deserving of all praise and worship. And all of creation will ultimately join together in the song of his praise, his exaltation. Father, if there be any here today, it's because of pride that we are blind, that they have not felt they needed the sacrifice of Jesus to, uh, to cover over, atone for, to forgive them of their sin. Father, I pray that you would help them see that even in these moments, they would proclaim in their heart with courage, with sincerity, Jesus, forgive me. I'm sorry. I've been skeptical. I've been self-preserving. I've been stubborn. But I give you my life. Have your way with me. I know there is no joy in exalting self. There is only joy found in the praise of you. So Father, help us to be a people, not full of pride in ourselves, but filled with pride in the gospel, in truth, making much of you, make much of your name through this place, make less of us, more of you. Do it in our lives, do it in our families, do it in our marriages, Father. Would you bring healing? And Father, out of our lips, may praise come forth because we know you have not only exalted, Father, your son, but through faith you have exalted each of us. We are yours, seated at your table, part of your kingdom, sons and daughters, all for your praise and for our enjoyment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.